The Sportscaster and Her Son is brought to you by Electroflex, a global leader in electrical conduit for over 60 years. Makers of Liquitite Flexible Conduit, electrically connecting our world. everybody. Welcome to the Sportscaster and Her Son, where sports bridges the gap between the generations. I'm your host, Peggy Kaczynski, 12-time Emmy Award-winning sportscaster at NBC Chicago for 17 years, and I am the baby boomer. And I'm Jason Kanander, former St. Ignatius College prep student and writer for Busting Brackets. Former. No, it is form- done. Yeah, former Ignatius it is, student. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is. And you are my son. I am your son. So typically this is where I would say um, we don't always get along, but um, our mutual love of sports brings us together. But Jason and I both agree the last dance has given us so much to talk about. It's been crazy. Jason, what's your reactions to The Last Dance, which we have been watching on ESPN throughout our pandemic shelter at home? No sports well, on, you know. First it- off, I want to offer up a disclaimer. You typically fall asleep about halfway through the second episode <laughs> of the night. So why are you telling me? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 true. It is uh, true. typically we start out the watching it with four people in the living room and I'm typically the last man standing. So <laughs> Um, anyway, anyway, my thoughts are, um, I think it's really cool to look back at the season. Obviously I wasn't around back then. So it's like a nice little look back in time. There's a lot of stuff that when you, when you're told about Michael Jordan and when you hear about the legacy that you don't know, um, unless you, you want to learn about Michael Jordan, you don't know about the gambling. You don't necessarily know about, um, his father's death, about him as a teammate, about the altercations, about how little he actually enjoyed being a celebrity and playing basketball towards the end of his career. Um, so the little stuff besides the winning and the moments that everyone remembers has been the coolest for me on top of some of the people that have been featured. Isaiah Thomas, Charles Barkley, Kobe Bryant, who's really cool to see, Barack Obama, Justin Timberlake, Bill Clinton. They've had everybody on here. It's so cool seeing um, the opinions and, and the... Uh, the stories from all these people that you really don't know how much they have to do with Michael Jordan until you see them in the documentary and it all starts to make sense. So I have to say that you brought up Kobe Bryant. I I felt uncomfortable. I I didn't, I I mean, I know you had, you have to include that. Um, I just felt, I just, it felt uncomfortable. It felt so soon um, since his um, tragic death um, in the helicopter accident that, I cringed when it came on, um, but uh, my favorite so far has been the Isaiah Thomas. I mean, my I, I loved seeing the true hatred coming out of Michael. I, I mean, I've never heard him swear so much. It was hysterical, and you could just, I thought that that was the best so far that they've done was uh, how they portrayed uh, the hatred for Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons at the time. Um, in 91, I was working at Chicago. No, I was working at ESPN in, in Bristol, Connecticut. 
And I was a production assistant and I, along with Mike Sear, were the two Chicago production assistants. And so we would sit and watch the Bulls games, you know, obviously, you know, all the, the, the PAs as we were, you know, you're watching, you're in these screening rooms and you're watching every game and you're assigned one game. Well, I would never get the Bulls because I was new. You know, I typically got like a tennis match or, you know, um, something like that back then. Mike Sear and I would be cheering and screaming because we were the two Chicago Bulls fans at the time. And I came home from working at ESPN uh, in 92. I went and worked the Olympics. I was Andrea Kramer's um, associate producer, her field producer, for the stories that she did covering the Dream Team in La Jolla, California, which is where they were um, uh, practicing uh, before they went over to the Olympics. And so uh, that year, in 92, I worked um, freelancing um, as a field producer for ESPN uh, after I came home to Chicago. And so I had that, that was my second way of, of learning the team. And then in 93, I got hired by CLTV, Chicagoland television. And so I got to cover them from 93 on. And it's been for me, it is just a walk down memory lane. I just, I, I can't get over that. It's been that long ago. It just blows my mind that it's been 27 years, you know, um, it's amazing. I love it. It's uh, really, it's been really fun. It's what stands out the most to you, Jason? Mm, I think what stands out the most to me would just be like the pure greatness of the team. All the um, trials and tri- tribulations that I had to make it through um, in order to achieve an incredible feat. People don't understand how hard it is to win a championship in any sport, but to do it three times in a row, twice in the same decade is pretty incredible. Um, so to just see how that all came together and to see like all the different moving parts, all the different personalities, all the different instances, the happenings, the games, the uh, just everything. Seeing it all come together in the way that it's been portrayed, I think, has been the coolest for me. So for me, my first on-air job, Chicagoland Television in Chicago, and I'm covering the, the, the third of the Bulls' first three-peat, or the first three, you know, championship titles. And, I mean, how fortunate was I? I just... just the, that's how it is. You cover championships. I covered three more after that. You know, that's you assume that's just how it is. So in a way, when you are so young covering it, it's you just assume that this is what the rest of your career is going to be like. So um man were we lucky. It was just incredible. Joining us now is the co-founder and executive vice president of Teamworks Media, Tom Smithberg, was the manager of media services for the Bulls from 91 to 99. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job through the entire Jordan era with the Bulls. And in the Jordan days, Tom was the guy that you went to when you needed an interview. And he said no very well. Uh, But he hit career gold working for the Chicago Bulls as their manager of media services. You can check him out on Twitter. Uh, He is at um, TWS1010. And also, this is a super cool thing that he's doing now. Because he was right then and there for the, the last dance in the Jordan era, he is doing last dance recaps backstage at the last dance and you can find that on teamwork media's facebook and twitter accounts mondays at one o'clock central time they also do 
This is super cool, too. I was watching this with uh, Ozzy Guillen and his sons, La Vida Baseball, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, LaVidaBaseball.com. You can find that everywhere. That's uh, one of Teamwork Media's uh, own properties. And Tom is nice enough to join us right now on the Sportscaster and her son. All right, Tom, I got all of that out of the way. (laughs) I got to tell you, you had not just a front row seat to the Jordan era, you were backstage. You had you saw everything that we didn't get to see. It is amazing to watch this documentary at this very crazy time in our world, right? That 22 years after they shot this special footage, spent the entire year collecting behind-the-scenes stories and going in the locker room and on the team playing in the bus and practice, that this incredible story comes out. And to reminisce and to look at myself at age 27 (laughs) behind the scenes and to experience the whole thing all over again in a totally brand-new light 20-plus years later, with the interviews and the reflections of Michael Jordan and his teammates and Phil Jackson, looking back on something that was captured the world, captured the sports world and was an incredible moment in time. And, uh, wow. Was I fortunate to be there at the right time when you said 91 to 99, I I thought to myself, yeah, that was the right years to work for the Bulls right out of college. I, I didn't know, I didn't know how good that timing was, but I was, uh, so fortunate and lucky to go from being an intern at the Bulls right out of college. I graduated from Northwestern literally the day the Bulls won the first championship in 1991. And I started as an, as an intern five days later, I was answering the phones for an hour a day while the receptionist was out. I learned from the, the ground up how the organization ran every day. And I was working in, season ticket for for a couple of years before going over uh, into media relations. So it was just an incredible experience, an incredible time. Uh, looking back on it now, you know, with, with that is, uh, is so rewarding and wow, what a, what a phenomenal 10 part documentary series so far as we talk today, they've, they've gone through eight episodes and um, my entire family and friends and everyone, I think everyone's just, really enjoying it. Isn't it really fun to, to go back and watch? It's really special. So Tom, what have they gotten right on the last dance and what have they gotten mm. wrong? Wow. Great, great question. Um, I think the number one thing that they're really getting right is the, the tension and drama of this really being the last time this team would make a, a push to win the championship together in that in that group, that it was so special, and all these relationships were coming to a head, and they were personal relationships, these were business relationships, and everybody knew basically that there was going to be a big divorce at the end of the season. As it turns out, there was a, a strike or a lockout in the NBA, so there was labor labor uh, strikes and things like that that also created a, a mark, you know, in the NBA's history, but it was just a, 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 for all the factors that are coming out in the documentary about the, the tension between management and the players and the coaches and ownership, they really got that right. 
Um, they also especially got right the fact that Phil Jackson found a way to keep the team, the players together, focused, and absolutely, uh, uh, you know, on the same page as professionals. And, and you know, despite all the crazy personalities as, as we've seen, that he did such a great job of leadership and 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 kept them together, knowing that this would be the last the last time. Um, now, if you ask me, what what did they get wrong? Uh, I wouldn't say that so much they've got anything wrong. I just there's so many bits and pieces and side stories. I'm I guess I I'm disappointed we haven't seen Luke Longley. He's a starter. Mm-hmm. He's a starting center. I really like Luke. Uh, we haven't spent enough time getting to know maybe some of the reserves on the team. Got a little bit of Scott Burrell. I mean, Steve Kerr's been fantastic. But I think there's so much focus on Jordan and obviously Pippen and Rodman that I feel that the other characters and the other players who played such an important role, Tony Kukoc, uh, I wish they would we'd, we'd fill out those stories a little bit more because uh, I, Michael Jordan did such a great job so far in these interviews to say, oh, I love my teammates, I love this, but I want to hear more about them than just Michael and Scotty. But on the other hand, I understand, you know, ESPN, they're going to focus on the, the big dog, so to speak. On the same topic, there anybody that you think has been portrayed incorrectly? Um, I know Scotty Pippen's upset because he thinks that he was portrayed as a whiner. Um, maybe Michael Jordan's been portrayed a little bit as a hard guy to be around. Who do you think, if anyone, um, has been portrayed mis misportrayed? I guess. Mm. I don't know if anyone is uh, misportrayed, so to speak. But I, I think you know, you look at someone. I'll pull out like a like a Tony Kukoc. They spent a lot of time, uh, maybe episode three and. Four, where they talked about Jordan and Pippen's hostility towards him, um, not personally, but because he was a, a Jerry Krause, you know, Jerry Krause, uh, general manager, really loved him. You know, just he was like his his special pick, and Jordan and Pippen really took it out on Tony uh, during those episodes with the um, uh, the Dream Team, and I really feel a guy like Tony who was a part-time starter and also was a former sixth man of the year in 95, 96, that he was a form of glue that partly kept the team together uh, during these challenging times in the seasons where how do you keep your motivation? How do you keep your intensity intensity up? I really felt like a guy like Tony Kukoc, you know, we, we haven't heard too much from other than just being a kind of a side commentator. I felt that he was probably a little bit more important player and so he, I'll, I'll call him as under portrayed, and as well, someone like Ron Harper, mm-hmm. who's a, uh, we haven't really heard from much from Ron Harper, but yet he was a starter on the team. He was a defensive, uh, kind of a whiz by that time of his career. He was no longer a kind of an all star and a starter or a, a, a scorer, a featured scorer. He was kind of a multi, uh, faceted player who did a lot of different things and, 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 took a lot of pressure off Pippen and Jordan because he would take on, let's say, uh, Reggie Miller at times and other key uh, uh, opponents that they faced. So I felt like guys like Tony and, and Ron Harper were a little under-portrayed and uh, that I'm a little disappointed in. But again, I understand the bigger the bigger part of the story, but it's really a, a, such a powerful cast of characters 
uh, you are now I'm thinking, gosh, they could have made this, you know, 15 episodes or 20, but oh, yeah. uh, that's easy for me to see from my perspective, having spent so much time on the inside. Passive players, one person in particular that I think has stood out in a negative sense throughout the documentary is Jerry Krause. <sighs> I believe that throughout all eight episodes, they've characterized him as a villain and as this guy that was just sort of a uh, of a cloud like weighing over the team. Yeah. What do you think about the way that Jerry Krause has been portrayed and the effect that that has on his ultimate legacy? Yeah, I, another good question. I really... And I talk about this when we do our recap show. I, recap shows Jerry. If you just look at his accomplishments, he was an excellent general manager, an excellent uh, 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 picker of talent. Um, he made some amazing uh, uh, moves to get Forrest Grant, Scotty Pippen, to get Tony Kukoc as a second round draft pick. Uh, uh, you know, to bring in the right cast of characters around Michael Jordan from from John Paxson early on from the 80s to Steve Kerr in the 90s. And then the, they had the vision to bring in, of all people, Dennis Rodman at a critical time when Jordan comes back. That's really from Krause. That was that was his talent and that, that was his accomplishment. And he should be you should be rewarded for that. You always are going to make uh, mistakes in that role. You, everyone in, in player personnel in basketball and any sport, team sport, Peggy, you know, you're going to get hits and you're going to get some misses. And Jerry had probably his share of misses as well. But overall, what did it result in? Six championships and brought the right test of characters. So I think that portraying Jerry as a bit of a villain, first of all, it's, it's so unfair because Jerry passed now. He, you know, he passed away three oh, years ago. Yep. It's a shame he didn't get, they didn't get a chance to interview him at the right time uh, where he could reflect on it. And maybe the film would reflect on Jerry a little bit more kindly. And I think uh, uh, that's a disappointment. On the other hand, you understand this is this production. You have to create the drama and you have to create the tension. And I think they pump up that side of the tension. Uh, they they over skew it, and it's it's a shame. And and fortunately, I will say this: Jerry Reinsdorf's comments in the in the film so far, he's been excellent. He's yeah. been very uh, well spoken, and he's defended Jerry and and others who need uh, who need that defense. And I think uh, uh, I give ESPN credit for that because um, he he's kind of Jerry. I'll say Jerry Reinsdorf has represented Krauss when he needed it the most yeah, in this film. Totally agree with that. So yeah. One more question on the topic of how the information has been presented throughout the documentary. Yeah. There are obviously there are two more episodes and one of my biggest takeaways from the first eight episodes are it's a lot of stuff. They cover a lot mm -hmm. of the Olympics, every single championship team, the teams before the championship, high school teams, college teams. What mm -hmm. do you think, what do you think is the most important thing that has been left out to this point, obviously, like I said, two more episodes, so we don't know exactly what's coming, but is there anything that stands out to you as, oh, they didn't include that, or why do you think that they didn't include um, a certain scenario or a certain happening? Well, it's interesting. Taking a quick step back, the original goal of the project was an inside-out kind of document documentary look. So... The producers at NBA Entertainment went to the Bulls and uh, and, and to the players uh, and said we we basically want to do you know 
covered the team from the first day of practice in October all the way through, and we feel this is going to be a special season. And they, there's so much of the month-to-month, road-trip-to-road-trip, interesting stories of the, the, the kind of the player interaction, the growth of the team, how they interact uh, with each other during really challenging times in the game, in the season, with the media, with the fans, with the opponents, uh, like, you know, the Indiana Pacers who took them to game seven in the Easter Conference Finals that year. We're going to see that in episode nine and ten. They were really challenged. And early on, I believe they started the season like under 500 for the first, you know, 10 games of the season. I think at one point they were five and five. I mean, you know, this was a team with five championships and they were barely 500 teams through, through November. So they had some really tough times. And I feel that the film uh, ended up from an inside out, how it was originally shot to an outside in approach. So I think they switched it. And obviously with 20 years of hindsight and 20 years of, of preparation, they, they kind of flipped it. So instead of this kind of start inside the team and build out, they're really going, as you said, uh, they, 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 they're showing all this old footage back to the eighties. And I was surprised they showed, you know, Jordan's 63 point game and all the backstory on that and going back and showing Phil Jackson coaching in Puerto Rico in, in the eighties. It was really it was fascinating to see. And that I enjoyed was it. great. Yeah. It was really, I mean, wow. You know, there was what the mayor or somebody shot the referee. I mean, all this crazy, <laughs> yeah. Stuff. Yeah. but it was really enlightening. Like I'm really, I'm glad they showed it, but, it's clear to me that a project changed in 20 years, you know, that instead of a true inside intimate look on the inside, it really became uh, this kind of outside in, like looking at what was going on in the world and sports and Jordan and how Jordan slowly built up the, you know, the, the, the step-by-step to how you build your career from a, uh, you know, wonder kind a star freshman who hits a winning shot from college to, the greatest player of all time and, and a true icon to the likes of Muhammad Ali and Babe Ruth over a 15-year period. So that's really what the story uh, became. But unfortunately, it left out a lot of the intimate, you know, inside scoop of what was actually going on the team in that specific 97-98 season. I, I remember saying to friends and family, gosh, the first six, seven, up, first six, five, six episodes, there's so much backstory. I feel like I'm watching the, the VHS, uh, Peggy, of comply with me all over again. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not critical of it, but like, I've seen it. Right. I want to see the, you know, the, the true, the behind, more of that behind the scenes footage, which, which fortunately, episode seven and eight, they really did a, a good job getting to, you know, getting into the, some of the inside story of Jordan's relationship with uh, Scott Burrell, who was a new reserve, yep. uh, a small forward who played out, like, just a little bit and pieces of that. It was really neat to see some of the interaction there because um, that's what I remember on the plane. That's what I remember at practice. Some of that kind of one-on-one uh, building of camaraderie and and uh, the interpersonal relationships of the team of how they came together so that when they got to the playoffs, um, it made sense that Scott Burrell finally showed up in that one game, I think three. He had 20-something points off the bench uh, in that first round against the New Jersey Nets. So, um it's it's uh, things like that that I, I I feel maybe they've missed a little bit, but I understand they're taking this big wide approach, showing the whole sports world and the wider um, um, uh, global uh, uh, view of what the Bulls meant and what Jordan meant and how it 
how it seemed to be over a 15-year period um, as much as one season at the end. Todd Smithberg is joining us on the Sportscaster and her son. He was the manager of media services from the um, for the Bulls during the Jordan era, 91 to 99. Uh, now the co-founder and owner of Teamworks Media, executive vice president. Um, you mentioned the team plane, Tom. And yeah. I want to know when people say to you, your friends, you know, 20 something years later now, uh, what was it like on the team plane? What, what what was it like on on the bus riding the bus to games you know with Michael Jordan and that group of guys what is it that we never got to see i mean what's your favorite story that you tell people about traveling on the plane what they were like well it's so interesting it it it's like a unique cast of characters usually i would sit in the back of the plane uh with the uh, Johnny Ridker and uh, Neil Funk and some of the broadcasters that would travel with the team. So that was kind of my geographic place on the plane. But you had interesting uh, groups of pockets, you know, with like certain of the uh, the Bill Wennington, Steve Kerr, Judd Bushler, and those guys would kind of hang together. And in their own little private area of, of the plane, uh, Jordan would be uh, playing cards with Scotty Pippen and um, Ron Harper, and he might get a rookie, like I think Keith Booth or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, Rusty LaRue, you know, they had a oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting characters. So he would get the rookie to sometimes hold the cards or hold the cash because Michael would be getting electro-stim on his knee. So he'd be getting treatment, so he'd need a hand to do that. So he needed literally someone, a teammate, to hold on to the cards and money. Oh and it, I mean, it was like it was it was like high school locker room games. They're just yelling and screaming and laughing, and you know the the the, the cards are flowing and the dice are flowing and the money's flowing, and just you're just laughing. And uh, a favorite Phil Jackson word of jocularity. It's just boys will be boys, silly, having a good time, um, really enjoying themselves. Always a competition. This is with the, with the Jordan crew. Always something uh, of me versus you, or let's keep playing until I win, or let's keep playing until uh, there's enough money on the table that makes someone else nervous. I mean, that was that was Michael's way. He just you know, tackling constant energy, constant um, volume and, and, and laughter. And then you'd have someone no one would expect, but someone like Dennis Rodman, who actually ninety percent of the time was a incredible introvert. He would sleep on the plane, and with a big leather coat over his head, you wouldn't even know he was on the plane. Oh, my gosh. And he was just – and you would, you would think, wow, he is such a performer and so um, flamboyant in many ways in his style and, 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 and you know, just a um, super exceptional out on the court. But if the plane was Dennis's time, he would just sleep, you know, and just kind of fold up and wouldn't talk to anybody and, you know, would keep to his own. So – it was interesting little pockets of characters, uh, but everyone had respect for their space and everyone got along for the most part. I mean, geez, if by then the team had won five titles, you're feeling pretty good. There's not a lot of, you know, I mean, there's tension and stress with the season, but you also know that they're, they were at the top of their, their craft. They were, they knew they were at the, uh, uh, they were the best. So and they, they just had to, they had to put out there every night. Tom, managing the me- the media requests for this group mm-hmm. of guys, um, I can only imagine mm. some of the requests that you 
and the team received. Give me an idea of maybe some of the craziest requests that, uh, I don't know, you guys had to turn down or the type of people that you started hearing from, whether it was for Dennis Rodman or Michael or, you know, any of the guys. What were some of the crazy behind the scenes that, like, nobody knew it was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that we're getting requests like this. Yeah, I'll tell you what. First of all, this was an era I didn't even have a cell phone when I was traveling with the team at the time. So there was, I I didn't even have, you know, uh, email. This was before email. This was before all that. So the only way to reach uh, a media relations person is leaving voicemails and print messages at at the hotel. And I will never forget when the first time the team went to Vancouver. This was 1995, but Vancouver was a young team in the league at the time. The Vancouver media are used to the NHL teams coming in. So they would have the expectations that the players would want to, oh, someone would have breakfast with me and then maybe have lunch with with him and then maybe have dinner with so-and-so. So the writer for the, like, Vancouver Sun, or I'm trying to remember the the name of the paper, he would say, hey, I'd like to do lunch with Phil Jackson and maybe a dinner with uh, 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 Dennis Rodman and maybe have breakfast with uh, Michael Jordan tomorrow. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that that worked in the NHL, uh, you know, maybe, but not quite in the NBA in those days. And uh, so I can remember, I I think I still have a, a, a bin or a box stored with, my three days in Vancouver because the, the hotel, the four students in Vancouver didn't have voicemail. So I think I have a stack of 152 calls with requests for interviews. And we were there less than 48 hours. I oh think the gosh. number was 152 for various things. Even if I wanted to, even if I, even if I tried, I couldn't return all those phone calls. Back. <laughs> and, and Peggy, you know how it is when you have a practice, it's, as, as my mentor and our good friend Tim Hallam says, he's the, the senior director of public relations for the Bulls for 40 years, he would say, hey, catch as catch can, which means we're going to practice. We're going to be at this gym. We're going to open up at, uh, at the end of practice for about 15 minutes, and good luck. you got to jump on it and, and, and uh, hope for the best that you get who you want to get. And as a result, you know, 60 people would be around Michael Jordan, 20 would be around Scottie Pippen, and a bunch chasing Dennis and Phil Jackson. So it was a, that was the true definition of media scrum uh, uh, back then. But real quickly, just to answer your question, you know, what's some of the craziest uh, you know, re- requests? I mean, we would have uh, requests, oh, would, would Dennis Rodman, uh, when we're in Cleveland uh, one time, I remember, would he want to go? Uh, to Sandusky, Ohio, and do roller coasters uh, <laughs> while doing an interview uh, at Cedar Point. You know, it would be kind of like that. Or I'll never forget when the White House would call and say, hey, is Michael available for golf with the president tomorrow? Come on. <laughs> I mean, I guess. I yeah, the Clinton people would call. And, and uh, you know, it, I mean, it was just a smattering, uh, you name it, you name it. Every request, whether it's Barbara Walters from here or, uh, you know, uh, a handwritten note from Arnold Palmer to Michael Jordan, would you show up at my golf, uh, you know, golf outing this summer? And by the way, that was one Michael did do. He wanted, you know, a handwritten note from Arnold Palmer. You didn't say no to that. Right. So just a fun, wide-range smattering of requests. Most of them were no's, respectful no's. That was my job to, to give the respectful no. Peggy, you know it well. But... Uh, <laughs> 
catch as catch can. And, uh, yeah, it's public relations and media services. It's, it's, uh, it's more like going to your, uh, sunny window and opening up the shade like once a day and letting the light in for about 15, 20 minutes. And then you got to close the shade. So (laughs) that was kind of what media relations was like by then trying to control the light coming in and then knowing when to open and close it. Uh, We, we, we weren't uh, in need of trying to generate new PR, so to speak. It was more managing the whole uh, insanity. You talk about how much fun the run was in the season and the whole focus, obviously, the documentary is the last dance, the last season together. And I can almost tie it to my senior year of high school, like start out the year. Everyone's so excited. All right. This is our last run. And then it's over. And you're like, where did it go? Like you have like that big letdown. So take me through what it was like once everything had calmed down after the parade, after the celebration. Like at what point did you realize like, wow, like it's really over. And how did that feel? Yeah, you know, you, uh, you in the moment, you can't metabolize what's really happening. And with the bolt, it happened so fast. In fact, Peg, I'm sure you remember, it was days after the parade at, in Grant Park where the famous uh, video of Phil Jackson hopping on the motorcycle and driving away from the Bertel Center for the last time. I, be, I, I believe it was like a week after the uh, the season ended and it was that fast. It was like, we had this big celebration, uh, big public and citywide celebration. And I know the, the, the players and the coaches got together one last time. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't at that private event, but I, I you know, I'm sure they're going to talk about it in, in episodes nine and 10. And, and that was that final moment where this was probably the last time this group could be in the room. And I just remember feeling it it, it, happened, it was over so fast and broke up so fast it, it, it just you couldn't believe it was it was um uh it was actually happening in real time because you just went through all this together and the players and everyone uh were in this celebratory mode and they also were realizing wow it's sad because this is it because as we know even if phil jackson went 82 and oh uh, he was not going to be coached the next year so it was uh, very bittersweet. Tom, did you did you know? I just assumed that you knew any everything that they're they're telling us. Um, did you know about uh, Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra's little um, late night rendezvous at the Birdo Center? <laughs> I, I got. I didn't know that, but it, it, there were several trips uh, that that Dennis popped out and just said, "I'm gonna." You know, they they utilized. They showed the. They described the the one Vegas in January right after. Scott Pippen came back and played with the team. But back in November, we're on the West Coast road trip to start, and it's the night before a game in um, Phoenix. And Dennis was restless and said, uh, hey, I want to go see my friend's Pearl Jam warm up for the Rolling Stones in Oakland. So Dennis's agent made me go to Phil Jackson and say, hey, uh, Dennis wants to go. Uh, I'll keep an eye on him, meaning me, the media relations guy, and I'll, I'll bring uh, the security guy and team photographer and uh, Dennis's agent. And, you know, we're just going to go see Pearl Jam and come back. And <laughs> Phil Jackson reluctantly said, okay. <laughs> the problem is we went to Oakland. We saw, you know, Pearl Jam from the stage and warm up for the Rolling Stones. It was an incredible moment. Uh, the only problem is if you draw a line between Oakland and Phoenix, uh, it's Las Vegas. So on the way home to Phoenix, we had to stop in in uh, Las Vegas for about five hours. Uh, and uh, we didn't get back to the hotel until the sun was already out. Oh, my so gosh. It, so there were a few of those other excursions that went on. 
Um, but to Dennis's credit, he, you know, it wasn't drinking and crazy stuff. It was just fun and gambling. And, uh, you know, he liked going to his rip clubs or whatever. And, just, you know, that's just what Dennis enjoyed at that time. So he was blowing off, uh, uh, you know, steam in his way. And that's just, uh, that's just kind of how it was. So there were a few of those, uh, trips. And, and fortunately, uh, I convinced Phil that, I would keep an eye on him, but so I can laugh about it now. But oh man, uh, that's funny. It all, it all worked well in the end, but uh, there were some there were some scary moments there. Where is Dennis going to make it back? Oh my gosh! Last yeah. question for you, Tom. Um, sure. I know they talked about um, Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules, but mm-hmm. what were the team's rules behind the scenes in dealing, like how you managed, not dealing, I should say, how you guys managed. Uh, all these personalities on the team in terms of, you know, behind the scenes, you know, were there rules Mm -hmm. on, you know, requests for Michael requests for Scotty requests for Dennis, you know, how did you guys handle it? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Great great question. You know, because the the volume of requests and questions, um, we we kind of try to do a divide and conquer, Uh, you know, back then, usually it was, one uh, media relations person traveled with the team the entire season. So that, that was me, a single guy in my mid twenties. You know, that was, that was my, that was my core role is just to have the consistency. They know that every plane, they were going to see me, every bus, every road trip, uh, that was going to be my role. So I would try to, to, to filter the requests and group them so that, I'd never come to Michael Jordan, you know, every day with a, a stack of things. You try to wait until there's just a little lull in the schedule or an opportunity to say, hey, can I sit down and spend five minutes with you and go through about 20 to 40 requests? And you can just, you know, knock these out and we could we could talk about them. You know, that's how you handle someone like a, mm. a, a Jordan. And then also working in conjunction with his business office because, uh, uh, David Falk and, and his business partners, they would they would also have appearances and requests that they would actually funnel through me because I saw him every day. They didn't. You know, they're working out of Washington, D.C. So it was always, let's say, once every two weeks, I'd try to have a moment where I could just sit down with you for 10 minutes and just kind of knock these out. And and uh, um, and then someone more like uh, the request for Tony Kukoc, he got a lot of international media mm-hmm. you know, trying to reach him. So I knew I could get with him once a week and just say, Tony, okay, here's your, here's your 15 requests for, or, you know, for a bunch of international stuff. And so we'd, we'd try to knock that out. And, you know, I'd, I'd coordinate with the, you know, NBA folks on that for the international and um, pretty much everyone else, uh, you know, Dennis Rodman, I could filter a lot of requests through his agent, you know, just because the unique nature of the, you know, the one, <laughs> like the one I brought up before, um, you know, because Dennis just was was not communicative on many levels. You know, you just couldn't come up to him every day and chat with him. Like, hey, we do this, we do that. Yeah. So you had to be, you kind of had to work in in little teammates. You know, with with uh, with with your colleagues or with their agents. But um, most of my colleagues in media relations and Tim Hallam and and, and uh, Lori uh, Weisskopf, who I worked with, we would handle. We would group together all the other requests for for John Bushler and, and all that, and we would just approach them day to day. Uh, probably more like a, a how how it is today, you know, m- much more organized, and um, um, it was just divide and conquer. It was just you were just, all you were trying to do was manage the workflow as much as you can and make sure that every media request gets some sort of response 
that you've received it within 48 hours and try to get an answer within a few days to a week and, and they just do the best you can. Oh my gosh. At that point, you know, they're just coming in by the hundreds. That's amazing. Um, well, yeah, it was just, it, it was, it was fun looking back. It was in, in the fact to remind you, we didn't have email and iPhone. Then. Oh God, <laughs> that, that blows my mind. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to when yours and uh, Tim Hallam's books come out um, <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes, the real behind the scenes. Uh, Tom, yeah. we, thank you so much. Uh, we look oh, forward to, to uh, your recap of the final two episodes um, that you guys will be doing backstage at the last dance on teamwork media's Facebook and Twitter um, Monday, 1 PM central time. Tom Smithberg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Oh, and my, my pleasure. Really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks for letting me uh, ramble on. Uh, because you're, every time you answer a good question, I just my brain just goes, oh, gosh, I remember this. I remember that. So thanks for jogging my memory. The blast. We could we could be here all day just talking mm-hmm. about these things. I, I love it. So thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. All right, take it away. What's your predictions? All right, my prediction's still coronavirus uh, themed because that's all anybody seems to talk about. Um, first and foremost, this week is a very big week because Major League Baseball is presenting their plan to the Major League Baseball Players Association. I think that it's going to be declined. All that I've heard is that the conflict will be between the salaries. The owners don't want to pay the players a full season. The players want to be paid a full season, be compensated for putting their lives and the lives of their families at risk. So I think it's going to be denied. I think it's still going to be a very long time before we have sports. That being said, not only do I think I'm going to school, I think that my school, University of Texas, will be playing football in the fall. Um, Big 12 in Texas as a state seems very committed to doing that, so I think we'll see football soon enough. And then finally, for my final prediction, uh, my school has announced three potential dates for graduation and prom, August, November, December. I'm going to say that we have a November prom and graduation. (laughs) Well, that's that's quite specific then to to you and your life, and I I hope You're right. I hope you do get to enjoy that. My final thoughts. Rarely do we have an opportunity to work with greatness. I'm not talking about you, Jason. Too often, we are so busy. He always rolls his eyes at me when I try to be funny. Too often, we're so busy that we just don't really see what's around us. We all knew that Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player, but watching the Last Dance documentary has really made me appreciate the very small part that I had in my career covering the Bulls from 1993 on. I was not one of the reporters who got access to Michael. I was one of those. We call them, you know, in the, the scrums, the big media scrums. You know, you, I, I, I was always in the back and trying to, you know, get your microphone in there. And that is how I learned from experience Fast forward when I would cover the Blackhawks and their Stanley Cup runs, how I learned how to get to the front. Um, Michael always stuck around after games, answered every single question. I'm not kidding you, every single one. There was no last question from a media person standing around telling the, the reporters. Instead, there were typically two waves of reporters talking to Michael Jordan. Because there were so many trying to get a soundbite, he would answer all of the questions. The first group, when they were done, they'd then back out, walk away, and the next group kind of walked up and would ask him questions, often the exact same questions he just answered. He never got upset. He never said, I'm not answering that question anymore. He just repeated his answer. 
You don't see that from today's top athletes. Michael was a master at controlling his image. He never knew which reporter was going to be that important to him that day, that morning, whatever. So he gave everyone his all. It was really amazing to watch. So I found in my home office the I'm Back fax that was received. Um, I think I got it from David Falk's office. I saved it. I framed it. I'm so glad that I did. I also found his second retirement press release. It's little things like that that kind of take you back and make you remember how lucky you can be if you just keep your eyes open and really appreciate the people who are around you. Um, I've covered a lot of athletes in my career, and by far, Michael was indeed the greatest. Thank you all for listening. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, and wherever you may listen. And thank you to Tom Smithberg from Teamworks Media. You can find him at Teamwork Media's um, Backstage at The Last Dance on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Don't forget, they will be recapping the final two episodes on Monday after they air, 1 o'clock Central Time. Check out Teamworks Media's Facebook and Twitter accounts. Also, check out Teamwork media's La Vida Baseball on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LaVitaBaseball.com. A reminder, if you love this show, please leave us a review. Go to RateThisPodcast.com slash Sportscaster and follow the simple instructions. Continue to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and the Sportscaster and HerSon.com. Stay healthy, everybody. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. The Sportscaster and Her Son is brought to you by Electroflex, a global leader in electrical conduit for over 60 years. Makers of Liquitite Flexible Conduit, electrically connecting our world.